Good day, listeners. Welcome back to the pod. I have got Danny here with me today again uh, to help us cover the financial markets. Danny, welcome back to the show. Hi, Jazz. Happy New Year. It's a bit late in the year, but Happy New Year anyway. Uh, we are past uh, we are past Chinese New Year as well. Uh, <laughs> <if I'm>... <laughs> <laughs> uh, look, but welcome back. It's been a while. Uh, just been busy with. We both have been a bit busy in our space, so never had a chance. So I was hoping, Danny, if we can start with the uh, macro landscape first, which is uh, the anticipated Fed policy changes, and maybe to some extent how Russia-Ukraine thing is going to play out with the financial markets. So, yeah, sure, Jazz. Yeah. Well, the whole macro scenario it's 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 challenging to say the least because. Uh, Markets went into a nice big sell-off, or not so nice for some people, uh, at the start of the year. And that was largely based on inflation concerns. And you had some very hawkish members of uh, the Federal Reserve coming out saying that we're going to have to tighten more aggressively, notably Bullard, who has been out stamping his fist on the table saying we'll need a 50 point 50 basis point rate rise in the March meeting. Mm -hmm. And then he wanted to see uh, another two by the beginning of July. So that's a lot. And there's no doubt that you are seeing high inflation readings. You're seeing uh, tight labor markets over in the US. And you've also seen uh, high energy prices, high rental prices, high secondhand cars, and obviously foodstuffs as well going up. So there's a lot of inflationary pressure. Largely, a lot of that is out of the control of the traditional monetary policy of central banks. But then, of course, the geopolitical risk comes along. And although you're continuing to see Um, upward price movements in the commodities complex, so oil, gas, um, wheat, and all those other commodities that Ukraine and Russia have um, a large exposure to. There's now a view that it's emerging that the markets, at least for the short term, may have bottomed, and you've seen a reversal in the US 10-year Treasury Mm-hmm. So it got over 2%, but it's coming back down again. I was just going to check it for everyone because I can't remember overnight, but we're talking about 187 around there. One, oh, there we go, one spot 861. <laughs> so you've had a reversal there. And people are now starting to question whether the Fed is going to hike so aggressively uh, in the short term. And really, I think at the end of the day, it's very much a, a, a moving feast at the moment in the markets, okay? Mm-hmm. So a lot of the technology stocks had discounted uh, much higher interest rates. Mm-hmm. And bear in mind that the Fed has said that they are going to be data dependent, which means they are basically setting monetary policy of historical pieces of data rather than Greenspan, who was notable for being forward-looking. And that's caused a lot of commentators to be very critical of the Federal Reserve Mm -hmm. and also arguably the Reserve Bank of Australia, saying that they've let inflation get out of control Mm -hmm. and they should have moved earlier. But they haven't. Mm -hmm. 
they have changed their view that it's transitory, although there's lots of different views of how how long transitory is. Mm -hmm. And I think at the moment there is a shift away from that whole position of going so hard initially because there will be concerns over basically the global financial system as some of these issues play out in regard to the sanctions on Russia. And the question mark always is when you get such a dislocation in markets, uh, which is occurring with Russia, which basically is they've hiked their short-term rates up to 20% to try and support the currency. They've stopped foreigners or anyone from selling on the stock exchanges. What we don't know is how many funds or hedge funds have money in there that they're trying to liquidate um, and they're leveraged. And, of course, that's usually when the, the problems start. Uh, so there's a lot of unknowns at the moment. Technically, the markets, um, they moved, particularly in the US, the NASDAQ was obviously sold off the most. Um, it literally, I think, hit a 20% correction and then bounced. But within that context, you had a massive disparity between software stocks, which had been crushed, the likes of Zoom and everything down between 65 and 70%. And then other stocks, Apple, which had had you know, some correction, um, but, you know, we're talking of the order of 12 or 15% rather than that 70 or 60, 50, 60, 70% correction. So I think there's some bottom fishes coming into some of those software stocks. You've seen it in cybersecurity. And at the moment, uh, you could see just a bounce in the markets on the expectation that short term we've hit a bottom and the Fed may not be as hawkish coming up into their March meeting. Uh, the Jerome Powell is actually speaking to Congress this week and we've got the jobs numbers out on Friday. So I'm talking about uh, the first week of March. So we might get a further indication of what's going to happen there. Um, so there's three things uh, over here. One is the inflation, which has been high this uh this uh the last year and uh, i think the imprint was about 7.5 percent from memory so geopolitical risk obviously and then the talk of the fed ra raising interest rates so whether they raise it by uh, whether they raise it six to seven times or three to four times whatever uh happens over there um where do you think the value for the investors lie uh based on the current situation at hand and i know it's going to keep changing but is it more is it more shifting towards the value stocks now over growth stocks? I think you've got to discern your view. Are you going, like as an investor, are you going to go into the camp where the Fed potentially is going to over-tighten and cause a slowdown? Uh, I wrote a piece a couple of weeks ago that was published on Ethan Arena, and it basically cited a few of the contrarians. Mm -hmm. And what they're saying um, and it includes Morgan Stanley, it includes Kathy Wood, David Rosenberg. And what they are saying is that if we look back at the fourth quarter of last year's GDP, which grew at 6.9%, only about 5% of that 6.9% was inventory buildup, and only 1.9% was actually coming from consumption. Mm -hmm. Since then, you've actually had PMIs coming off the highs, so they're falling. You've had the likes of consumer confidence taking quite a hit, and I probably expect that'll take a bigger hit. And what they're saying is that 
basically the economy is not as strong in the US as some people think, and that the Fed is at risk of coming in and basically causing the economy to slow down too much, which means they'll back off. So a few of those commentators would argue that the Fed might maximum get three 25 basis point rises in before they have to back off. There's also the midterm elections that are happening in the US by November. So there's a lot of politics also going on in the narrative in so much as Biden's trying to blame the central bank, the Fed, for not getting inflation under control. But the only way for them to get inflation under control is to absolutely crush demand. And that, of course, starts to beg questions around stagflation and that obviously that horrible word has started to emerge again with Russia. I think this, the positioning that I continue to take is, as I still have cash that I'm ready to put to work, and I continue to think that the secular trends, the growth, which has been really out of favour um, and sold off. So you've seen the cybersecurity stocks run. Um, Tesla's come off, but it's still up 25% year on year, but it's been sold off in this wave. I still think that whole green energy EV space is going to do well. And I would be very cautious about the overweight sectors that everybody's raced to, which is the value trade. And you're seeing it in industrials, which are really weak. You're seeing a big sell-off in the banking stocks at the moment. Um, what you're not seeing it happening is in the commodities complex. But if you get a resolution to Russia, Ukraine at some point and you get an economic slowdown, well, that'll be the last shoe to fall and it's increasingly becoming an overcrowded trade. So I am still in the camp of there is still long-term disinflationary forces from demographics, from an overhang of debt in our economies, which basically is going to limit how much the Fed and central banks can ever raise interest rates without collapsing the whole financial systems and mm -hmm. asset bases. And the problem is, is that unlike in the 1970s, everybody now through their superannuation funds, through their homes, they all have exposure to assets. Mm -hmm. Clearly not the lower demographic groups, which are going to get absolutely crushed, which is awful. And they are being crushed at the moment with basic fuel costs going up, food costs going up. So that end of the demand curve is going to be very, very weak and increasingly weak. Mm -hmm. And this is the problem that central banks are going to be in. How do we trade off? Do we absolutely kill the economies to get rid of inflation? Um, and we potentially collapse asset prices, which has a material effect on superannuation, pensions, retirees, etc. So they're not in an easy space at the moment, but Ultimately, you want to position companies that have a lot of cash on the balance sheet that are in a position to uh, make takeovers and expand so that they will be able to, um, like Microsoft buying Activision Blizzard, I think you'll see more corporate activity going on. Mm -hmm. You want companies that hopefully can still have demand in spite of what's happening at an economic level. And you could argue that technology will still engineer cost savings for businesses, okay? Mm -hmm. And 
cybersecurity is an obvious example at the moment, and those stocks are running hard. But you could argue, I own Palo Alto in the US, okay, that that's performed much, much better than some of the cloud cyber stocks like CrowdStrike and Zscaler. Mm -hmm. And you could argue that if the Fed does have a U-turn, that they've just got a lot more room to run because they've been sold off so much. Mm -hmm. So your underlying assumption over here, one of the underlying assumptions that you have over here is that Fed won't be able to hike rates uh, more than maybe 0.75 or three to four rate rate hikes, basically. Yeah, so Patrick, basically the neutral rate, what you know, is has come down substantially. Every cycle, it's getting lower and lower. Mm -hmm. So just for the debt levels are just way too ginormous, and and you're going to get there's a lot of corporates that are going to have to roll over their their you know their junk bonds and things as well. So. Your listeners might want to refer to the work of um, a guy called Michael Howell, who is the CEO of Cross Border Capital. If you Google him, you can find him on YouTube. And Michael is what many would say is the top liquidity analyst in the world. He was our strategist at Bering Securities. And he's been doing this, what we call global liquidity analysts, since the um, early 80s for Salomon Brothers. Mm -hmm. And uh, he basically looks at how interrelated uh, the plumbing of our financial system is mm -hmm. and how when we're looking at these markets, you really should be looking essentially what the central banks are doing, how mm -hmm. much money they're putting in and how much money they're taking out. So one could argue that if they start QT, quantitative tightening, which is different to raising interest rates, so just to remind everyone, mm -hmm. QE is when they're injecting money into the financial system by either buying junk bonds, by buying mortgage-backed securities, by buying treasuries, which is what they've done, and they expand their balance sheet. QT is the reverse of that, so they stop buying them. But you could argue that if they actually start selling some of these, that particularly in the Treasury market, the US Treasury market, you could cause a huge spike in yields. And the reason is, is that the, they still have to issue bonds to fund the government, but now they're competing to sell their bond holdings. Mm -hmm. So I think the one thing that is a, a really big red flag is that in their QT, there's one thing to just let the bonds roll off, i.e. they expire. But if they actually start selling them, it could cause quite a bit of dislocation in the markets. Mm -hmm. One more thing um, is the some of the indicators that or the traditional indicators, uh, likes of Schiller ratio, Buffett indicator, all of the all of them, on an average basis, they're still on the high side, right? So yep. look at them uh, even after the early correction that we have seen in the markets. Yeah, well, that's what a value investor would say. Absolutely, they're high, mm -hmm. but interest rates have never been this low. So I, again, if you are going to go down that path, you have to say what would happen to economies if interest rates even went back to 4 or 5%. Mm -hmm. Like how indebted everybody is. And, yes, it is way too on that basis, those traditional modes, but you're comparing, you're not comparing apples with apples because the economies were very different back when those were actually calculated. 
So at some point, if you want to go down that track, um, there's a good video with David Rosenberg um, on his, he's now got um, a uh, podcast that he does mm -hmm. and he has a really interesting interview there uh, with the likes of Scott Minnard, who is um, very experienced. Um, he is from Guggenheim and also a, a woman whose name is Pom Pomfrey, I think it is. Um, and they, they go down that thing of saying, yes, markets are expensive by historical standards. However, we have seen in the past when interest rates have been lower, it does have an impact on valuations. So it becomes a relative thing. You can't compare what the valuations were back in the early 80s to now. And if you do, then you would have economic collapse, mm -hmm. in my humble opinion. But also I'm citing the work of people that are much smarter than me. I'm citing the work of the likes of Victor Schwetz, from, who's the global strategist for Morgan Stanley, mm -hmm. and the likes of Rosenberg and these other people. So mm -hmm. I think there's a disconnect between the reality of what the debt in the financial system has mm -hmm. had and what is realistic. And you would argue that what po politician would deliberately try and trash housing markets by 30 or 40 percent? Mm -hmm. Interesting. So knowing what's known, how would you in for 2022 talking this year, uh, what will be your favorite picks for the year? So if you're looking at sectors, which is probably a good way to go, uh, I would still so. I would still pick selectively in the technology sector, in the in um, in the um, software sector. But again, selectively, as these stocks are sold off, you want companies that have strong competitive advantages, great cash flows. Uh, I would also say that you want to look at healthcare. Mm -hmm. um, I think still think that that is very strong and it's defensive. And also, I think you have to be, it's more a case of what you try and avoid. You have to be very careful, discretionary retailers, in my opinion, unless you go very much to the lowest cost discretionary retailers. Um, you want to go back to traditionally uh, recessionary stocks. So alcohol, tobacco, not that we have tobacco stocks in Australia, but people basically hunker down if there's a recession and they, the stocks that'll do well are those where people have to spend their money as opposed to where they don't have to spend their money. And as I said, I think the crowded trade is probably in the financial stocks. And I would also be wary of constantly chasing uh, some of the commodities complex. But of course, we just don't know what's going to happen with Russia at the moment. And there's also that whole dynamic playing out between there not having been enough um, investment in exploration and development for the oil sector, arguably the coal sector. And the reason is, is that the ESG climate change slant has meant that pension funds have put huge pressure on the banks not to fund these. So as you get a transition occurring, you get excessive spikes in those prices and you know investors will flock there particularly too for 
the cash returns, the dividend payments, the share buybacks and the like. But what I did look at, which I thought some of your listeners might be interested in, there's an ETF in the US called URA, which is Uranium ETF. Mm-hmm. And I was just looking at that. It's looking quite, it's sold off from its recent highs. And obviously, this geopolitical problem with Russia and the Ukraine will really, I think, have a very significant impact on the way countries look at their energy security. Mm -hmm. And we are seeing a point in time where that whole globalism is being fundamentally challenged. It was challenged during COVID, continues to be challenged in supply chain, and ultimately countries will want energy security and independence Mm -hmm. so that you're not reliant on despot states Mm -hmm. for your energy supplies. Because ultimately they will black, try and blackmail countries. Mm-hmm. So if anything, I think it's going to accelerate the development. And I think the uranium debate will come, nuclear power will come back on the table. And I don't have strong views either way, except to say that the lead times are incredibly long mm-hmm. in terms of building new nuclear power, fire, um, power stations. And the fission that everyone talks about is still 50 years away. So I think some traders may be moving back into that space. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Um, One thing I wanted to touch on, Danny, and maybe this is not within your uh, specialization area, is something that happened yesterday, actually, which was the Russia raising their interest rates, cash rate from 9.5 to 20%, right? Mm -hmm. It's a big jump. We are talking mm-hmm. about cash rate being doubled yep. overnight, right? Yep. What, I just wanted to see what, what are your general thoughts on it? Well, it's it's all about stopping people, you know, from, from stopping the ruble from collapse, collapsing, basically. So mm-hmm. you get a run on the currency and you get a run on the banks. Mm-hmm. So that's basically what it's all about because they've been cut off from the Western payment system, a lot of their banks through SWIFT. Mm -hmm. So you get a run on their banks. You have problems in settling trades, although China's providing a lifeline. Mm -hmm. And they just want to shore up the ruble so that they don't have to go in and buy it in the actual markets Mm -hmm. because then they use up, you know, they have to go in and use up their own reserves. So ultimately countries work on how much foreign exchange reserves that they have and, um, they don't have enough at the moment and they're going to have trouble earning more because people are going to stop trading with them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's it's it's all to do with... Um, it, it happened in the Asian currency crisis. So when all those currencies started to collapse, mm-hmm. they have to jack up interest rates to stop people from sending their money offshore, mm-hmm. to stop them from buying US dollars, basically, and selling the ruble. Mm-hmm. Um, but it causes lots of problems, this dislocation, okay, because so in long-term capital management in 1997, there was a hedge fund and they had two Nobel Prize winning mathematicians on the board and they had created what they called a black box, an algorithm that they felt was safe, that could withstand any any events and when the Thai baht collapsed, and so the reasons 
why they had the Asian currency crisis was the US dollar was rising. They were putting up interest rates in the US. A lot of these countries have US dollar denominated debt. And as the US dollar goes up, they can't service their debt. They used to peg their currencies against the US dollar. The pegs collapsed, the currencies collapsed. There was a collapse in the, the banking systems. And this basically fed from Thailand around to Indonesia, Philippines. It, it had a contagion effect. But what ultimately caused the biggest problem was a hedge fund that had exposure to Russian bonds, sovereign debt, and long-term capital management referred to it as LTCM. Mm-hmm. And they always said that Russia wouldn't default on its bonds, its sovereign debt. Well, because they couldn't afford to pay because their currency was under pressure, they basically defaulted and long-term capital management had a lot of debt and they owned a lot of these bonds. So basically they're now in a position where they can't service their debt and their main positions are collapsing. So long-term capital management started to go under, okay, 300 million and at the time it was very large and it caused what was the first systemic risk in the global financial markets and it shows the interconnectedness so when LTCM started to go under all the banks were called in to put money into it to shore it up because it was now at risk of dragging everything down and I'm, I can't remember, but probably the Fed also dropped interest rates having been rising. So they did a reverse course and probably ultimately set up for the next boom, which was the run into um, the dot-com bubble. But LTCM was basically salvaged, but wound down. And ironically, one of the banks that was asked to bail out long-term capital management, so put money into it, was Bear Stearns. Mm -hmm. And, of course, Bear Stearns was one of the first casualties in the Mm. GFC. And some people speculate the fact that they refused to come in and help LTCM meant that they, the you know, the regulators, the Fed, let them go under in the GFC. Mm. That's good. I think that's all I had, Danny. Uh, from your side, maybe do you want to do a 30-second summary for investors uh, looking to invest 2022? Volatile. <laughs> <laughs> long volatility. Simple. Well, no, it's not long volatility because you can get caught short either way. I mean, it's like it's long jumping short. around so much. So I think you've just got to be uh, very patient. I think you've got to be really disciplined and try not to panic. And I think you're just going to see... It doesn't really matter which asset class you're sitting in because so much will be determined by the liquidity from the central banks. Mm -hmm. So I think you've got to pick the times that you put your money in. Um, Don't be afraid to take, if you make some money, take it off the table, but stick to quality. And um, I just think that it's just going to continue to just, you know, we've got some pretty... Pretty extreme events happening at the moment. Someone tweeted the other day, it's it's almost like a baptism of fire for new investors. They've had a one in a hundred year pandemic event. They've now got effectively the first major war in Europe since World War II, like a major one where nukes have been threatened. Heaven, heaven help us all if that happens. I don't think it will. 
And then you've also got these extreme weather events occurring. So companies are being hit left, right and centre at the moment. So a bit like the pandemic, it's the companies that can manage their supply chains, uh, potentially capital light, so technology companies that can maintain their margins, can be swift to react. Because I think a lot of companies are going to get caught out with too much inventory. In Australia, you saw it with City Chic. You've um, potentially going to see it happen in the US. And that's because they all were worried about the pandemic. So they brought in all this inventory. But if you do that at a time when demand collapses, Mm -hmm. then you're in serious problems. Ansel had that problem as well. So like the earnings reporting season, so you had really good earnings reporting season out of the US, another great one in Australia. But even companies that have had great results will like the share price will go up for one or two days and then it's sold off again. And interestingly enough, the cash holdings on the balance sheets of companies in Australia was up like 60% to $246 billion. And the amount of dividends paid was, was not as high as usual. And that signals to me that companies are expecting times to get a bit more tough and they want the cash on the balance sheet so that they can go out and make acquisitions or be in a defensive position if the economy is slow. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. Um, that's great, Denny. Awesome. Thanks for that. That's all right, Jazz. Appreciate your time, like always. And uh, it'll be awesome to see. It's sad with what's happening uh, with the geopolitical landscape, but uh, it'll be interesting to see how the year pans out. You never want to have all your eggs in one basket, do you? Fair enough. Well, uh, if you talk to some of the hedge fund managers, uh, likes of uh, uh, Stanley Drunkenmiller, they try and put all their eggs in one basket and just no, watch. No, they them. don't. <laughs> well, that's his statement publicly. I can send it to you. <laughs> oh, I don't think so. Well, hedge funds have a different mandate. They're not you and me. That's true. Yeah. yeah. And you've got to remember, Stanley Drunkenmiller, by his own his own admission, bought the dot-com bubble literally the day before it burst. Mm, didn't you that? Something yeah, new. Yeah, it's called the, um, there's a speech that he did down in Florida. You can Google it where there's this big Mia culpa and he takes the piss out of himself. He <laughs> says, I knew that everything in my bones was telling me not to do this, but I just couldn't help myself because my performance was so bad. I mean, hedge funds blow up. There's probably another one about to blow up. We'll see with with, um, Russia this time around. So, you know, nobody, in my humble opinion, should be investing like a hedge fund. And if you are, like, you have to question your whole risk parameter. It's like my son has lost quite a bit of money. And I said to him, darling, you have to learn to sell because if you were to say how many hours work, you needed to put in for that money that you have lost, was it really worth it? Mm-hmm. And I think people underestimate that investing is as much about not losing money as it is about making money. And mm-hmm. we are not hedge funds. And I don't think anyone should invest with a hedge fund mentality. Few people do with Tesla because they know the stock intimately and they're comfortable with it and they can stand the volatility and they still think it'll be the largest company in the world. But uh, that's not for me. I like to have, a, you know, for me, it's not diversification. It's capital preservation as much as anything else. 
Mm-hmm. Fair enough. Rule number one, never lose money, isn't it? <laughs> well, yeah, absolutely. Because it takes a lot to make it back again. True. Mm. Uh, I appreciate your time, Danny. Really no, no problems, Jazz. Thanks for that. To the listeners, none of this is financial advice. Please do your own research. Play safe, stay safe, and we will see you guys next week.